0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org.
1: Welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health, where we look through world affairs through the lens of health. And today, our focus is girls and the link between education, health, and social and economic well-being. Our partner is Vulcan Productions. And they're the producer of the film Girl Rising. They also are the founding partner of the campaign. It's uh, 10 Times 10 the global action campaign based on the film. The film is about girls worldwide who struggle to get an education. We a journalism partner uh, is Global Post, the online news production. And, uh, Our panelists here are all going to discuss the problems based on the film. I'm Abigail Trafford. I'm your moderator. Uh, For many years, I was health editor at The Washington Post. And I have been a journalism fellow here at the Harvard School of Public Health. So let me introduce our panelists. We're going to make this a discussion. So it's going to be a bit of a free for all. And um, I've served as the cop, sort of, to say when things get out of hand. And so if I'm rude, please forgive me. And I hope we're going to have a lively discussion. But here are our uh, panelists Jacqueline Baba, Director of Research, FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Alicia Yehman, she's Director of the Program of Health Rights of Women and Children also at the Center for Health and Human Rights. Donna Barry. Donna Barry is Advocacy advocacy and Policy Director for Partners in Health. David Canning is Professor of Economics and International Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. And from Los Angeles on our screen is Richard Robbins, a graduate of Harvard. And he's the director of Girl Rising and an Academy Award nominee now the film has been released in theaters throughout the country but it's going to be broadcast on cnn this sunday at nine p.m. well richard i'm going to start with you uh... certainly girls have been in the news and i want to ask you what did you learn from making this film
2: i think the biggest um... the biggest surprise for me really was the girls themselves um, i think so often when we think about these big, overwhelming global problems, we imagine that the the human beings at the center of it are somehow um, damaged, broken, hopeless, you know, characters worthy of our our pity, really. Mm. Uh, and, and very often from the United States, I think that's the view we get of, of pe- people, people, girls in particular, in the developing world. So in some ways, the biggest surprise was going out there and meeting girls who were energetic and hardworking and enthusiastic and truly optimistic. Um, And, you know, we began to talk about these girls not just as um, sort of, you know, people worthy of an education, but really as revolutionaries because their ambitions for what they want to do with their education go so far beyond um, just helping themselves or helping their families. They really seem to have a broad sense of their own, uh, responsibility and capacity for creating much broader change in the world, uh, and that was really a surprise to me. I think it's one of the reasons that girls' education is so effective, is because girls seem to have that natural inclination to create meaningful change, you know, in their communities.
1: Oh, I like that idea of the girls' swagger. Uh, let's uh, let's see a film clip from the uh, from the movie.
3: My story is like thousands of others, millions. No one bothered to record the date of my birth. As a girl, I was considered unworthy of a record. I am told my mother burst into tears when she learned my sex, set me aside in the dirt. She already had one son but wanted another Wanted the status of being a bearer of boys. My mother never learned to read or write. She's never opened a book, never written in a diary. Can't even decipher the scribbles on a bag of rice. From the age of three years old, I spent my days working. My hands and face were chapped from carrying icy mountain water to wash men's hands. I woke before dawn, cleaned the house, washed the clothes, the dishes. I carried my siblings on my back until they were old enough to walk. I learned early to serve. I learned early that this is the way things were always intended to be for the women of my family. A life of servitude. My happiest times were the few short years of my education, I learned to read and write on an old blackboard fixed to a crumbling stone wall. Girls in other parts of my country where the Taliban were in tight control weren't allowed to go to school at all. Weren't allowed to step outside their homes, so I was always aware of my privilege. I was 11 years old when my father arranged for me to be married. My mind was of little value, but my body could settle a dispute, pay a debt. My body is a resource which can be spent for men's pleasure or profit. Who will care that I have been married against my will for 250,000 Afghanis, roughly $5,000? For that price, my father offered me in marriage to a cousin. My empty-eyed mother approved the match.
1: Okay, let's jump in. Jackie, you go first. What do you make of what you hear in this film, and what is it like for all of you who are in the field working with uh, girls?
4: Well, first of all, I'd like to congratulate David. I mean, many of us spend our lives thinking about these issues, but that is very moving, and you cannot but be drawn into the life of this girl and her family. And I guess my first comment is that I couldn't agree with you more, David, about the... Uh, reality but also the importance of seeing the young women the girls that we work with as survivors rather than victims as people who are remarkably resilient and that's really one of the joys of course if you're doing the work that we do you often encounter situations which are desperate which are infuriating which are deeply depressing but at the same time you encounter this extraordinary resilience and so i think that uh, that's a very important sort of reward really for entering this work what i would say in this from this particular context that clearly a whole range of issues uh, are raised by this short clip her birth wasn't registered. Her birth was regretted. She was never sent to school. She was married as a child, so she was married in violation of international law. Uh, she had no say or any no choice about who she was marrying. These are a series of customary practices which we would count as, as violations, but which in many societies are simply business as usual and custom and practice. So I think when we encounter them, We need to think. What are the ways we can impinge? Just heavy-handed, top-down, sort of dictating how things should be is not going to be enough. So I think this film, for me, raises all these questions.
1: Absolutely, because you don't want to create a backlash or do something that would actually put the girls in jeopardy. Well, Ali, what do you, Alicia? Let's see what you, your research tells you.
5: Uh, well, I certainly concur with Jackie that there are a lot of legal issues raised. Uh, I mean, certainly child marriage is something that's in violation of international law. It's one of the areas which the most countries have made reservations about under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. That is that they don't want to abide by that part of international law. Um, there are certainly economic issues raised. We're doing research on the impacts of maternal health on children in sub-Saharan Africa. And when resources are scarce or tight, girls tend to be taken out of school first. Girls tend to be married off so that they're not a burden to their families or, and so that they can get the the dowry money. And as Jackie alluded to, there are certainly um, cultural issues consciousness issues, I would say, whereby you know the greatest inequalities and abuses of girls' and women's rights are uh, those that are accepted as inevitable or divinely ordained, where she says, I learned that I was to live a life of servitude, um, so that there's not a possibility of uh, challenging and questioning and transforming those relations.
1: But what about within a country, the differences between class and caste? I mean, uh, what, what is the role of, say, upper-class women in dealing with these sort of, in a sense, entrenched customary practices in their own country? Do you find differences between classes?
5: I think you'd find significant differences in terms of classes and cast and education levels and rural versus urban. Donna has worked a lot in in rural areas with Partners in Health in a number of countries. Maybe you want to speak to that? Sure.
6: No, I'd be happy to. I think um, first let me also add my thanks um, to the filmmakers and and, uh, from Partners in Health on being able to participate with this. Um, But there were some really concrete examples in that clip about uh... you know showing how girls have less access and i think that picture of the three-year-old sweeping the floor and carrying the water that girls Often um, are asked to or required to stay home to help with the household chores, and, and b- when boys often aren't. I think we definitely see disparities um, and inequities between how many girls get to go to school in, in urban areas versus rural areas. There's, there's a, a real disparity, and, and as we were saying, among classes, I mean, the poorest classes often. Um, even if school is free, education is free, pub- public schools are available in countries, and they are in some of the countries where we work, there's additional cost that, that uh, the poorest families can't uh, pay for. Yeah, uniforms and, and, and books, and you know, even when they get a bit older, then things related to menstrual hygiene. And, and so there's, there's so many barriers there related still to the economic issues, even though we say it's free. Um, it's really not free for so many girls.
1: D- David, connect the dots for us between economics, education, girls, and health.
7: Well, we know uh, you know around the world that economic development goes hand in hand with improved health, uh, with better education and improved uh, position of women. But I think the really important thing that we've learned over the last decade is that you really don't want to wait for economic development to solve these problems. It's not that economic development is going to improve the role of women and uh, education and health. It's really improving the role of women, improving education, improving health that drives economic development. And we do have very, very cost-effective and simple mechanisms that will improve those things. And so I think there's, a, I think there's in some people a view that we, you know, we really want to wait and economic development will solve these problems. And actually, I think we've now learned that's completely the wrong view, that we really want to do these interventions that improve these girls' positions. And I think it's particularly the women, it's particularly the role of women in society. And that by improving these these girls' positions, uh, you get this enormous uh, social benefit, but you also get an economic benefit. Particularly when women start working outside the home, there's an enormous increase in labor supply. And that was a driving force in the East Asian miracle and can be in Africa and the rest of Asia.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. And what about, um, you know, you've been talking about how many of these countries do have primary education. Well, you know, what about quality issues? And then what about secondary education? Because you you know, if you stop at age 12 or 13, what kind of, you know, don't you want to go further? Yeah, I. I
6: one of the, um, that's one of the most astounding things when you look at the numbers. It's easy to get lost in the statistics. And so you can have countries where you know, they'll say 90% of girls have been enrolled in primary school, but first of all, less than 40% probably finish primary school, and then the number that are able to go on to secondary school is usually in the 10% 15% range. And so, you know, we, we there there has been a lot of progress made, I think, in getting girls into school over the over the last couple of decades when there's been a focus on it. But as you pointed out, the quality is often not there, and certainly very few girls are actually finishing primary and moving on to Secondary, let alone college and things
1: yeah. like that. Biggest obstacles, if you had to zero
6: well, in? On this
4: particular issue, I would say that it's interesting this gap between the advances that we've made in primary education and then this dramatic fall off in secondary education. And just to put a little bit more detail there, we know that it's not equal across classes or areas. So rural populations have a much greater falling off in terms of their access to secondary education than urban. And girls, of course, greater than boys. So what are the primary causes? And what can, you know, what can we think about here? I would say it's interesting that this fall off correlates with two things. It correlates with puberty. Mm-hmm. We can't do anything about puberty, but we can do something about the consequences of puberty. And it correlates with government priorities, and actually up to now even global priorities. So we have spent a lot of energy, UNICEF, the Convention on the Rights of the Child Committee implementing it and so on, insisting on the importance of primary education, so that we now do have much greater access with problems about quality to be sure, and and, and problems about, about consistency, but nevertheless, we have accepted, it seems as a global society, that young children need to be in school. But we haven't really accepted that secondary school is an equal priority. So we have this cohort of you know, kids who are being in, inducted into school. And then we have this massive waste in opportunity. We have this falling, dramatic falling off. And for girls particularly, it correlates with, as you saw in the film, a situation where you're often then withdrawn, not just from school, but you're drawn into this paralyzing isolation of early marriage, of enforced domesticity, of childbearing, of enormous familial responsibility without real contact with the outside world. So I think we need to both look at institutional issues to do with the importance of secondary education and the resources allocated. But we also need to look, as, as Ali said, at the cultural issues and the societal issues that address puberty and what is proper for a girl post, uh, post-puberty.
2: Yeah.
4: Richard, do you have some comments?
2: I wanted to say that that at least anecdotally, when we went out into the field, and, and this film was made in, in 10 countries over, over several years, um, I, I found that the um, the cultural resistance to the idea of educating girls um, at least felt to me as a person coming to this issue for the first time to be much um, thinner and less significant than the economic issues that again and again we found people who were uh ambivalent maybe reluctant on a sort of cultural level about the idea of girls education but the real hurdle for them the real obstacle was economic that even if they wanted to educate their girls um, they simply weren't in a position to be able to uh, you know sacrifice an extra pair of hands at home doing work, taking care of younger children or weren't able to afford you know school fees or we kept a list when we were in the field of all the things that that uh, families ended up paying for paying for homework, paying for exams, um, you know things that we think of as part of the idea of free school um, you know in places like Cambodia where students are expected even in a public school to come to school with money to pay the teacher because the teacher's salaries are so low um, that they look to the students themselves to supplement their income so I found over and over again I was surprised
5: so so I wasn't saying that there's just cultural resistance to sending girls to school I think that there are issues about socially ascribed roles that girls play and in fact I think uh, educational systems can uh... help to transform those roles but they can also reinforce them frankly and going back to what donna said about quality there's a, there is significant data suggesting that educational and health systems and the contact girls have with those systems reinforce roles as uh... instrumental for childbearing um, uh... sexual identities uh, caretakers uh... et cetera. so i think the, the substance of education is as important as getting them to the schoolhouse, which in many countries may be literally an empty room with no books, no mm-hmm. materials, no nothing.
1: Yeah. It really seems that there's a point that where the girls start to mature, that everything comes together in a sense to block further uh, education. Um, we're going to go on and see another clip uh, now. Um, so let's, let's see that we have another story.
8: This was the house of my first master. My mother and father bonded me just so that I would have somewhere to live and enough food to eat. I was six years old. Fagutharu was a landlord and a miller. He made me work from four in the morning to late at night. I had to clean the house and wash the dishes and go to the forest to fetch firewood. When I wasn't minding the goats, I had to mind the children. The goats were nicer. The daughters made fun of me because my clothes were torn. They teased me. They beat me. I wanted my mother and father to take me back. I wanted them to let me stay at home and go to school like my brother. But when I thought about how poor they were and how much they too had suffered, it made me feel weak. I couldn't ask. This was the house of my second master. Janakmala wore a uniform to work. He and the mistress of the house were very hard-hearted. Unlucky girl, they used to call me. Hey, unlucky girl, do this, they'd shout. They made me sleep in the goat shed and wear rags and eat scraps from their dirty plates. I can't really talk about everything that happened to me here, but I will never forget. This is where I began to write songs. Only the songs got me through.
1: Kakarzan Monday Lutas Dadu boyan
5: is called Mapaharna. My duke is high Jim Daduakar and Zaina Marakaina Cursing Marie
1: Well, you know, there's been a lot in the news about bonded labor and trafficking of girls and um, uh, closed, closed closed-off lives. And I think let's let's look at this. Um, You know, Jackie, I mean, this is this is health and education, but it's human rights. Put this all together for us.
4: Well, I think the first thing to say relating to this clip is the interesting explanation this this girl gives. On the one hand, she says, my parents had to sell me to make sure that I had somewhere to stay and something to eat. And then on the other hand, she says, my parents were thoughtless in giving birth to a a daughter. So on the one hand, there is a sort of implied criticism that, you know, of the parents. And maybe, and on the other hand, there's a recognition that the parents had done this in a way to protect their child. So I guess my first point is that we often think that these parents are cruel and that these parents are wicked. And how could anybody sell their or bond their child? How could anybody give a ten-year-old girl up for marriage, etc.? But very often these choices are choices that are made in order, misguidedly perhaps, but in order to protect the child. And we have to understand that, I think, when we're trying to impinge. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that we've actually known for a long time that child labor, including bonded labor, doesn't reduce poverty, but rather it's the opposite, that poverty results from child labor and bonded labor. So if you really want a solution, you have to sever that link. So what is happening in this case is not alleviating poverty. This girl is not generating any wealth. If she were being sent to school, if she were a boy, they would have sent her to school. She would be in a position then to have skills which could eventually draw on more resources and and reduce the burden of poverty. So I think it's often argued that child labor is a consequence, a necessary consequence, of economic necessity. But in fact, everything we've known for 20 years shows that this sort of situation where you deprive a child of basic literacy and numeracy mm-hmm. skills simply perpetuates the cycle. Yeah. David, do you have some comments here?
7: Yeah, just, I think uh, I'd just like to follow up on this economic point that it, uh, the, the economics of access is really important. And one thing we've learned is that even very small charges, very low, what we would think of as very low school fees, these costs of school uniforms are really important, and that experiments have been done showing you get very big increases in. Um, Uh, in participation. Um, And there are also, uh, I think, uh, which addresses this child labor point, is that we've also been very successful at increasing enrollment with uh, conditional cash transfers, and even unconditional transfers that are linked to the girl. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, give families some money if they keep keep girls in school, or you just give families some money when they have girls, I think because it's linked to the girl, she tends to do much better. So the, the, uh, the issue of financial resources and costs, I think, is, is really key. So I think there's, um, th- there's this issue around the, um, the family circumstances. Mm-hmm. But I would also emphasize that you know, it's not enough just to get enrollment. There are also issues around the quality of schooling, particularly attendance, and then what children actually learn in school. And that requires the, uh, uh, the education system to work. And often in these countries, it doesn't work very well. And one thing that happens uh, with there was a an experiment just increasing the number of teachers in a school and monitoring the teachers' attendance that increased participation. <laughs> one reason people stay out of the public system often is it's very low quality.
1: Yeah, so we have all these threads coming <laughs> coming in. I think this is a good segue into solutions. I think we've got we see what the problem is, and I want to turn to you, Richard, that uh, what you have seen i mean we're uh, there lots of grim situations, uh, lots of sort of little glimpses of hope, but where do you see progress being made?
2: Well, I think you see it, uh, you know, both in the big numbers and in the, in the small stories. I mean, clearly we've made enormous progress in, in primary school enrollment, and, and quality, I do think, is catching up, although slower than enrollment. Um, but, you know, SUMA story, Suma in Nepal, is a, is a classic example. You know, Summa is now an activist. Um, she, there was just a story in, the, in one of the, the Nepali papers uh, that, that somebody sent me that had a photograph of her at a demonstration, demonstrating to end bonded labor, um, and uh, you know, it's one of the reasons that education is such a powerful point of leverage is because it's self-perpetuating. You know? um, one of the most important statistics to me is the degree to which um, educated women then educate their own children. Um, and so it has this self-perpetuating nature, and it does lead to economic development, which leads to, you know, improvements in education. And so um, it does have a kind of, uh, you know, a geometric exponential uh, effect when you manage to get, you know, a, a whole cohort or a group of girls into school. You really can see, um, you know, a kind of systemic change in a in community. We've seen it, you know, over and over again in the communities we've worked in. Yeah. Where just managing to get you know one group of girls into school for a period of time um, does have remarkable impact.
1: Yeah, there's a, a film, another film clip that I remember from the movie. And it's about a young girl in Ethiopia, and it's going through the uh, the thing of an early marriage and uh, grim prospects. And actually, it's her brother who says, "No, this is not a good thing to do." Um, And uh, the 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 clip suggests, you know, that um, it's not just about girls, but it's also other members of this. It's about boys, and the whole family, and sort of uh, how to change. A a a kind of culture, and so I think let's move on with more solutions. Um, I, J- Jackie, you have some programs in India. Talk about those a little bit.
4: So um, it's actually this the comment that you just made, Richard, about the uh, Nepali girl is is a very good um, entry to our point, uh, our, our programs. So we have decided after some years of looking at obstacles that girls encounter in India, obstacles related to access to financial hardship, to um, assumptions about what girls should do, and so on. We decided, let's change our focus. Let's look at success instead. Let's look and see how it is that some girls manage, despite the obstacles, to succeed. And so we started a program, a research program, called the Champions Project. And what we do is we look at positive deviance. We look at girls who have deviated in a positive way from the norm, from the cohort they're part of. So whereas 99% of girls from their background, girls who have illiterate parents and very scarce economic resources, don't make it beyond primary school, these girls have made it to college. How? Why? What happened? So we have completed one study in one big area in India looking at girls in their second year of university, both of whose parents are illiterate, trying to understand the triggers of their success. So it's our, our, we call these girls champions. And what we are finding um, so far are basically three things. A, we're finding that government programs are not very successful. Government programs are not making a difference yet. Mm -hmm. B, we're finding that mentorship is critical. Mentorship from parents. Mentorship from brothers or sisters, especially brothers, mentorship from the extended family, mentorship from teachers. So, having somebody who believes in you and who holds your hand. In a way, it's common sense, but it's a scarce mm-hmm. resort. So, that's the second finding. And the third finding is that you need resilience, personal resilience, to succeed, to stay the course. You have to overcome enormous amounts of sort of sexual harassment from teachers, from boys in your class, harassment on the bus, harassment generally. So you need to be resilient. You need to have these inner resources. So in a way, those are encouraging findings. And in a way, they're challenging findings. How do you create mentoring parents? How do you generate resilience? It turns out that there aren't quick fixes, but that we need to think more than we have about these psychosocial, Um, elements in economic development so for someone like me coming from a legal human rights background this is quite quite a quite a revelation that we can't just think about rights Uh, we do have to think about how we nurture these relationships
1: yes
5: Uh, Alicia So I have a slightly different view. Um, I think the the movie, and I would encourage all of you to see the movie. They're really beautiful, beautiful stories, all of them, from different countries around the world. Um, has a number of girls who are um, incredibly resilient, and in fact, some of them talk about imagining themselves as superheroes, or one was named after a superhero. Um, and I don't think we can expect all girls to do that. I think we need systems in place that can ensure all girls get a decent shot at an education and a life of dignity. Um, I think it's important to understand the outliers, as Jackie says. But I also think it's important, and actually in this um, clip uh... what later happens is that Suma gets hooked up with a group of social workers and teachers who then engage a number of girls who are bonded to advocate for themselves and uh... free themselves and and engage in law reform and policy reform so i think those kinds of collective action and mobilization i think Uh, law reform and litigation. We've seen litigation, for example, in South Africa. There's a current case on providing bathrooms to girls in secondary school, which is a crucial obstacle for girls to stay in secondary school, as well as access to uh, appropriate menstrual hygiene. Um, And I think in some cases, governments need Technical assistance to work in a multi-sectoral way. To know that it's uh, it, that, for example, in terms of health, that comprehensive sexuality education is necessary. Um, many of the girls in the film are depicted as sexual victims, but in fact, girls uh, have sex and like to have sex. And sexual and reproductive health and rights needs to be part of solutions going forward to keeping girls in school I and think- empowering them.
1: Yeah, I think now is the moment we're going to turn this over to our audience and see what questions you have, and also we're going to take questions from our participants online. I think we've—it's uh, what's interesting to me—is from the very, very large, which is the whole situation of girls worldwide, and then these very specifics like you know bathrooms, uniforms. So anyway, let's hear questions from the audience. Yes.
3: Good afternoon. Thank you. This has been so inspiring and illuminating. Um, My question is involving the role of the media in improving girls' status. I'm wondering if your expectation is that many of the girls overseas um, highlighted in this film will be able to see it. And if not, I'm I'm curious, and this question is for Richard, um, if you saw any way in which media is being introduced into these young girls' lives in a way that it wasn't maybe 10 years ago, whether it's online education or access to television programming, images of um, girls who are empowered, and it can reduce their isolation.
1: Thank you.
2: Go for it, Richard. Well, certainly uh, we are working now. Uh, you know, we've sort of finished the, the main thrust of our US rollout and are just beginning, really, to try and work on getting the film into all the countries where we, we made the film. Um, I'm leaving on Sunday for India. We're having an Indian premiere there um, next week. And also, you know, one of the reasons we were so excited about the partnership with CNN is because it's going to show on CNN International, uh, which is, you know, hundreds of millions of, uh, granted an English speaking international audience, but still a, a very important, uh, international audience. Um, you know, surprisingly to me, the biggest, um, change in the sort of media landscape, um, from my travels, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago to working on this film was cell phones. Um, And so many of these girls have access to cell phones at a very low cost uh, and are able to um, communicate with their friends in private um, through texting, um, communicate with, you know, mentors in private. I mean, um, there are tons of situations we came across where the kinds of things that that Jackie was talking about, the kinds of things that Alicia was talking about actually came together. You know, we had a situation in Ethiopia. Um, We met a group of girls who I just was kind of blown away by their sense of their own rights and power. Um, and when we investigated further to try and figure out what was going on there, they had formed a girls' group in which slightly older girls came together and mentored younger girls, um, specifically around the issue of enforcing the Ethiopian government's ban on early marriage. So if a young girl found out that she was going to be married uh, when she was you know, 11 or 12, she had this group of slightly older girls, in her community who she could go to and say, look, you know, I think this is going to happen. And they would literally come together, go to the house of the family where the young girl was going to be married, and stand up to the parents and say, look, this is illegal. Don't do it. We'll call the police. Um, so you, know, you end up with a kind of um, partnership, really, between these community groups and the legal structure. Um, because the Ethiopian government isn't capable of enforcing the law, but the community groups um, take a role in that. So, um, and, and cell phones, I should say, cell phones, for for whatever reason, especially in a rural area where people are very spread out, played a crucial role in, in passing this information back and forth between the girls out of view of their parents. Um, so that was quite a remarkable thing to witness.
1: I think, uh... Yeah, I think the idea of cell phones is really—it really is a, really, a wonderful global leveler. That, uh, in a sense, cl- cultural change can happen through this this little thing that we uh, have in our hands. You know, as I'm listening, I think I—you know—you see, uh, it's such an important role for the community, uh, and um, for all of you who are in policies and and, um, and design programs. Uh, How do you make sure that the community is behind, in a sense, the goals of the intervention?
6: If I can just say a quick response to that. You know, I think it goes back to the point that Richard was making that it's oftentimes not the families who don't want to send their kids to school, it's the economic barriers. And I think we've seen the same thing in the communities in which we work once the opportunities are made available everyone is supportive of the kids getting you know, access to this education and the benefits that they get with the education whether it's a nutrition program that's being provided mm-hmm. through the schools or or health care programs you know so i think it's it's you know there's a role for the media obviously to play in, in You know, talking about these issues and making sure that more people hear—I mean, that's one of the things that everyone you know that works in the field knows. I mean, radio shows are the ways to reach the vast majority of people, even more so, definitely, still than cell phones. And so, you know, the media still has a huge role to play in I think talking about the equality issues and the equity issues. Um, but it's really, you know, you find almost no resistance once, you know, once the, the certain, opportunities yeah. are available to girls and that's to, right. to young children. That's
7: yeah. right. but, I, but I would emphasize the, um, the really important role of government. The government yeah. have to put the resources in. Yeah. And Absolutely. That, that means paying for the schools, yep. removing school fees, yeah. and doing things yeah. like these free school lunches. I think free school yeah. lunches are very important, because for the poorest families, that's a way of feeding their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, yeah. that does yeah. a big effect on enrollment. Yeah. But that needs real resources yeah and it needs that needs government commitment as well as communities
1: yeah, yeah. um but other questions I didn't mean to jump in and take over <laughs> some more questions. We have some online questions
0: hi everyone yeah we we do have a lot of online questions um This one's an economic question. Can you talk a bit more in economic terms about why the benefits of educating girls so outweigh the benefits of educating boys? I'm especially interested in the research that shows that educated mothers have a measurable impact on the health productivity and economic stability of their children and their entire families.
7: David? <laughs> uh, 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 there's an enormous rate of return to education. Each year of education raises wages by about 10%. But
1: why girls?
7: And actually, but just giving that information, okay. <laughs> increase enrollment. Why girls? And I think there is this issue that girls care more about their children than the fathers, that women do. So when you educate women, and when you educate women and they become, uh, you, you, you get a, a better match in education level of the husband and wife. The woman's role in the family becomes much more important. And the more the woman is involved in decision making, the more resources flow to the children. And that's true of education and health resources. So I think the role of women within the family is really important. And there's this additional thing that when women are educated, they start working outside the home. And that that, that can almost double your potential labor force. All these women are already working. We saw, I mean, they're working, but they're working in very low productivity. And usually they're working not for pay. So they're working, but it's not very efficient. And so getting those women into the labor market is part of the economic takeoff. But it is true within families, improving the role of women tends to mean that more resources flow to the children.
4: I wondered if I could just jump in here, because I think it would be unfortunate if we phrase this Uh, in terms of girls against boys. I think Mm. what we're really saying is that girls need the same opportunities as boys. So girls should not be discriminated against. Girls shouldn't be doing housework, water fetching, childminding, sweeping when boys are doing homework, which is what we found in a survey that we did recently. Um, But at the same time, particularly when we look at issues to do with gender-based violence, it's critical that we also educate boys. It's critical that boys should be learning about menstrual hygiene, and should be learning about the risk of HIV AIDS, and should be learning about the evils of child marriage. So I, though I do agree very much that uh, we need much greater emphasis on girls' um, right to an education and girls' access to education. And we do know that res- women, as well as as girls, tend to invest more of the resources that they have in families rather than in their own um, in their own pleasures or in their own pursuits. Nevertheless, I think it would be unfortunate if we phrased this as an either or or in some sort of adversarial way, because very often it's actually. F- in the best case scenarios, it's fathers and brothers who are also change agents. And so we want to to draw them into this rather than push them away.
8: Can I just yes. jump in on yeah, one, one other thing? I
4: think the other thing that we don't want to frame this in is
6: that it we're educating the girls so that she becomes a mother to take care of her family, that we're also educating her to make you know, be able to make really good decisions herself for herself and for, you know, it, then by extension for her family. And so we know that with additional years of education, particularly getting girls into secondary education, that they can put off childbearing until they're healthy and old enough to be having children. They can make better decisions on their own health care. So they can space out the births of the children and stop having children, um, so that you know we don't lose their life eventually through you know uh, maternal mortality. So, the, and that obviously has huge economic benefits, but you know for the family, for the community. But we also see national uh, benefits, right? And that we can model out where if we've got the education level, we can increase you know national incomes
5: and by. And they right. have a right yeah. to education. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: And <laughs> I also picked up one thing you were saying that uh, an educated girl is more likely to marry an educated man, and you mm-hmm. turn around the other way, an educated man is more likely to marry an educated girl. So could you say to the families, if you want your daughter to marry well and be taken care of, send her to school? <coughs> I mean, this gets uh, this this whole probe. It seems like what we're talking about is everything: it's family dynamics, it's love and romance, and it's education, and it's government policy and uniforms. <laughs> Another question.
0: I've got plenty here. Oh, good, good, go. chat going on. Um, well, I'm going to shorten this one a little, but um, this is actually two questions, but it's related to the role of men as well. I'm interested to, one, hear more about the distinctions made between girls, women, and adolescents. How are experts such as yourselves defining these terms and understanding their implications? That's one question. And the other is, and efforts on critically understanding and encouraging the role of men, which we touched on as well. I think this view is... Maybe I can
4: first just jump in very briefly on the definitional question. So I don't think there's, in international law, any definition of a girl or of a woman. There is, in international law, a, a very widely accepted definition of a child, and therefore by elimination a non-child, which we take to be an adult. So, and that definition, which is provided by the Convention on the Rights of the Child, is any person who is under the age of 18. With more or less so, so if you think, take a person who's under eighteen up to the age of eighteen you're a child, and over that age you are an adult. Now, you could be a girl at the age of 19, and you could, uh, um, you, you know, so, so girl is not, is not a term of art in international law. Adolescent is a term for which there are definitions, but there isn't a consensus definition. So UNICEF, for example, the UN agency uh, responsible for children, defines adolescence as the period that goes up to 19. So 10 to 19, in UNICEF-speak, are adolescents. The International Labour Organization, which is the primary organization that produces norms and uh, regulations about work, about who can and who can't work and what sorts of works are acceptable, defines youth as 15 to 25. So that's sort of, in a way, a different way of getting at it. But there is nowhere an actual definition that everybody agrees with uh, of the term adolescence at this point. And the follow-up was, was
1: really the the role of men. Maybe we should just ha- take <coughs> that head-on. I don't know. David is the man on the panel. Do you want to? <laughs> 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 then we'll go to you, Richard, yeah. and then we'll clean up. <laughs> I mean, there is this
7: issue, but you know, I think, but in terms of education, in most countries, most developing poorer countries, the enrollment rates for girls are much lower than for boys. So I, I, I don't think anyone was really talking about bringing boys down. It's really about bringing girls up. But when you but usually when you expand the whole education system, uh. It's boys first who get into school. So the initial effect of expansion and putting resources in is boys start to get getting, getting educated. And then you have to keep expanding, and then typically girls start coming in. And I, but I think there are things that can be done to encourage girls in particular. Um, so I, I, I would uh, advocate that. And I think equality in education uh, is a goal. The, uh, the idea that we have a permanent uh, disadvantage for girls, I think, is, is not reasonable. So a few countries. Uh, I, I, I did some work in Bangladesh in rural areas, and there actually the enrollment rates were actually quite similar. So in some countries there is equality, but in many countries girls enrollment rates are much lower, mm-hmm. and so I think that's that's part of the problem that we, we that's why we're focusing on this.
1: Yeah. Now, Richard, in your film and what you found, what, how, where the men fit in.
2: Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, Brothers and fathers just play an enormously important role in so many of the stories that we uh, discovered when you sort of dig a little deeper for where the the resilience comes from in these girls. um, It often comes from a a man in their family, sometimes a woman, but very often a man, um, who tells them that they have potential, that they're worth more than the culture at large is telling them they're worth. Um, and it and, and going back to the question of educating boys, we had a number of situations where it was what the boys learned in school about the value of education that led them to go back to their families and say, no, my sister deserves that, too. My sister is going to have a different life than the one that our mother had. Um, and I've learned in school how how you know, valuable education can be and what her future can be. And so they play an important role in uh, in bringing that information that they've learned in school back into the household. Terrific. Often, you know, teaching their parents something that their parents didn't know.
1: Great question here. And and Ade, tell me, tell us who you are when you can you just answer. wait
0: for the microphone, thanks. Yeah.
8: Um, hello, good afternoon. Thank you so much. My name is Shimana. I'm a physician, and I'm in a doctoral epidemiology program here, interested in global health. Um, Thank you to everyone on the panel. It's been great to hear what you have had to say. My question is really for Richard. Um, so you've made this film, and I'm, I'm thank you so much for getting these voices heard. And um, primarily, what do you think do we have to do to make sure these voices are heard fully? And what would your advice be for us as researchers as to the unanswered questions? And what have been the most promising consequences that you've observed um, from making the film? Thanks.
2: Well, the most exciting thing for me actually has been the reaction of young people in our American audience um, that high school and college age girls and boys but girls in particular um, seem so energized by the the stories in the film and the also the idea that they actually can contribute to making meaningful change in the lives of these girls I and mean, to me one of the most exciting things about this issue is that we we pretty much know what the solutions look like, that we're facing a challenge of resources and implementation. But, you know, everyone in this room knows what a good education is. We know what a good teacher looks like. We know what a good school looks like. Um, so, you know, the the goal is very real and tangible to people in, in the Western world um, and giving them something where they really do believe they can make a difference. I do think this is an issue that is really susceptible to our intervention as individuals, not just as uh, larger organizations. Um, so that's really been the most exciting. I mean, we've seen you know, bake sales and the creation of sister schools, and um, we're now t- taking the steps to build a curriculum for high school and college students around the film. And um, that piece of the engagement has been incredibly encouraging.
1: Another question right here.
0: Hi, my name is Slava Rukiki, I'm a doctoral student. Um, I was wondering about um, economic opportunities for girls um, or for young women, um, especially in light of what happened in Bangladesh. And I was I was wondering, are we are we just moving girls from poor household conditions to poor working conditions, um, or life threatening working conditions? Um, and is that just like a necessary evil that a country has to go through in terms of its economic development, or is that can we do something as a you know? As a society, to prevent those kinds of catastrophes.
4: I mean, maybe I can just start by saying I think that's why secondary education is so critical, because um, if you don't have literacy and numeracy, and unfortunately, you can spend six or seven years in a primary school and still not be able to recognise your name in a paragraph of print. So you, you know, just attending school doesn't deliver knowledge or learning. So um, I think certain skill sets are critical for access to rights respecting jobs particularly in our globalized world so as long as we're only giving uh children boys and girls and particularly girls access to sort of mediocre set of redundant skills, all they can do is manual work, which is very badly remunerated often in very you know, conditions which which really violate their rights. So I would say that one critical piece of this is is real access to, to higher skill levels. Of course the second piece of this, and this relates to what was said before, is proper enforcement of health and safety, proper enforcement of building regulations, proper enforcement of labor laws, and so on. I mean, the Bangladesh factory example is the next one. You know, that building was in violation of every single norm, and they knew it, and the inspectors had reported it. What were the authorities in Dhaka doing? Why didn't they? Get involved. So you know we're then, of course, talking about corruption and about w- poor governance and all the broader sort of set of issues. But I think that if we could really focus on access to skills and access to skill development opportunities and more vigorous enforcement of workplace norms, we would be making some steps.
1: I, I hate. Uh, oh. can, uh, can I just add a uh, footnote to yes,
5: that? Note sure. I, I think that issue goes beyond Bangladesh. I mean, the overwhelming majority of maquiladora workers, uh, factory garment workers in incredibly poor conditions are women. And it's our bottomless desire for consumption in the United States and elsewhere in the North and, uh, and lack of concern for the safety and health regulations of the people who are making cheap clothing for us and cheap toys for us that also fuels those kinds of conditions. So that's something where we in the United States can do something.
1: I'm afraid, I hate to break up these questions, uh, but we're running out of time. And I want to give everybody on the panel an opportunity to sort of wrap this up. I think I think we're talking about changing the world. And, and as I said, we go from the very little specifics to the larger uh, picture. But I think that's what's important. So I want to start with you, Richard. Final well, words for us. Galvanize you know, best it.
2: Advice- that I got when I was starting this project actually came from, from Paul Farmer and, and Jim Kim when he was still at Partners in Health. Uh, and this was many years ago when we were just in the research phase. And they said, you, you know, when you get out in the field, the most important thing you can do is listen to the girls. Um, you know, don't come in with your own preconceptions, but really listen to them. They will tell you their stories mm-hmm. and what, they, what their goals are, what their needs are, what their dreams are. And let that really be your guidance. Um, and that was really the ethos with which we made the film. And I think it's the right ethos to sort of guide all of our work in this area, which is that the girls themselves understand the value of the education that they they're seeking. Um, and they will work harder than any of us um, to get there. But they need our help. Um, but you know, the the sort of core human capital um, that really is required exists they are on the ground they have it they live it and breathe it every day and um, so you know the engine exists they just need a little help with the steering
1: Sounds great oh David, you're next
7: yeah I mean I've worked in a lot of developing countries and they're really no different from us they're poorer, but I don't think there are fundamental cultural or other barriers that are holding them back and I think the the road to success here really is through I think investments in Uh, Early childhood health and an education—it's building the human capital. That's what's going to lead to long-term success.
1: Terrific, Donna. So I think a
6: role that you know anybody who's watching or everyone in the audience can can play is to is to exactly help um, galvanize the resources. Whether it's taking uh, an action to make sure that U.S. resources are. You know, continually channeled to good international causes, what which is you know education for everyone. You know, everyone's if you're a U.S. citizen has a congressman. They can they can write and and you know say you care about this issue. And there's lots of great organizations, including our own, that, that are involved in these activities. And I think just really quickly, the other thing to be looking at though is where this money is going. And then and as David referred to, I mean the public system is something that we really need to help strengthen in these countries. We're doing it in the health sector, but we also need to be aware that that yes giving donation to a small school private school is going to help the girls in that school but I think we need to be looking at the bigger infrastructure issues and really trying to strengthen the public education systems in these countries great
5: Alicia Um, well I have to say Richard I watched this film with my two boys who are 12 and 14 and both of them were incredibly moved by it Um, both of them thought Well, you know, we didn't know about this before, and a lot of people don't know. But once you know about it, you have to do something about it. And they felt the need to mobilize and share the film with their friends, and I think that that speaks to the power of the film. And my older son, my 14-year-old son, said, you know, Mom, I really think that, that progress in the world, that countries should be judged on the way they treat their girls. (laughs) and if we can get that across i think we'll be making progress yeah yes (laughs) yeah jack
4: well i agree with all these comments i i would say that um at one level the problem is daunting it's vast it's multifaceted and it requires the intervention of government it requires the massive mobilization or change of direction of resources. But on another level, I do feel, as people have said, that all of us have a role to play because, Political resources, political will, do depend on public opinion, whether it's to do with the consumer goods we buy and whether it's you know asking when you buy something whether it was made in a sweatshop or commenting that this is, is sweatshop free as being a positive aspect so that this gets, gets fed back, or whether it's making contributions or whether it's writing, uh, whether it's in our classrooms. I, I think that each of us does have a role to play. And I think that just like we have managed to really make an impact on certain seemingly impossible challenges like HIV AIDS um, because there was sufficient political will, sufficient skills, sufficient resources, and because several very powerful constituencies really uh, were affected. So I think we can make an uh, an issue of this. But we have to make the point that this is as much of an emergency. This is as much of a global priority. And we need to do that together, I think.
1: Well, I thank you. I thank our panelists so much. This has been, and we're not, we, we don't have to stop. You can continue talking about these issues. You, you go to forumhsph.org, dot org, and you can continue the conversation. But for now, we have to stop. But again, I thank the panelists. I thank all of you for being here. And, and Richard, I thank you for this film. Everybody, go see it. Uh, Be sure to turn on CNN. That's this Sunday, 9 o'clock. And together, we'll change the world. (laughs) Thank you all very much.
0: This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing
8: the forum.